You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Sometimes you don't know. dark out tonight on the beach, isn't oh, it? Yeah, it's super dark. Yeah. It's kind of scary. Dark. Yeah, it is. Yeah, is the moon dark. out? What? Uh, I don't see it. Okay, Maybe Sylvia, because Sylvia, I have to stop you. I just, every time you talk, I can't help it, but you sound so much like Miri. Oh. I mean, just sound. I mean, doesn't she sound like? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I can. I can so much like her. Where, yeah. where yeah. is Mary? Actually, she's doing her monthly recharge oh, thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, Sylvia. I cut you off. Great. What you were saying? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it, it's just that it's too cloudy to see the moon. Oh. Yeah, or the stars. It's yeah. super cloudy. Or each other. Yeah. 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 yeah that's okay, true. so we're sitting around a campfire, and it's really dark and scary. I think we should tell ghost stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know any ghost stories, Sue. That's yeah, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't really like sleep well after ghost stories. That's true, really? too. Oh. Yeah. oh, well, okay, how about a stories that nobody knows? Like, no one knows the story. No one knows? I mean, I mean, like, we don't know them. We on the island, we don't know them. Or, or, oh, or uh, okay. okay, maybe like family secrets. Oh, let's tell family, family secrets. secrets. That might be kind of fun. That might be kind yeah. of fun. Or, or yeah. maybe yeah. it's family lore or a myth. No, 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 I know what it is. I know what it is. Okay, it's family stories from when we were little that didn't make sense at the time, but they do now. Oh, okay. No, okay, yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Should we do that? Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right, who wants to go first? Well, well you should go first, Sue. I don't yeah. want to go first. Why should I go first? Yes, well, you, you suggested it. You should go first. Yeah. All right, I'll go first. Yeah. All right, I'll go first. Okay, so, um, okay, here's a family story. Um, okay, so my little brother, David, was slow to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, giggled and he cried and all that kind of stuff. But he didn't. He wasn't like formulating any kind of words for the first two years of his life. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was literally there was no mama, no dada, no none of that. Mm -hmm. Now I don't actually remember this because I was only about a year older than he was. Right. But um, anyway, this is the family story that's been passed down. I mean, I was there. I'm sure it happened. I was there. I was just. Not tracking. Anyway, so for a little background, my, my little brother was born with spina bifida, which, uh, which is an incomplete spinal cord. And the severity of this situation in his case meant that he was paralyzed from the waist down. Um, now, when the spinal fluid has nowhere to go, it can back up into the brain, and which can cause problems. Um, they deal with this by implanting a shunt to drain the spinal fluid. But when David was born in the 50s, the shunt was a brand new technology and it didn't have a lot of history with it. But they tried it anyway, and it worked. Yay, great. But in the meantime, his eyes had crossed. And as he was starting to grow a little bit older, he still had no speech. Now, there was always a concern from the beginning because of the spina bifida that he might be hard of hearing or have some side issues or some cognitive issues. But my parents kept being told, just wait, just be patient, let him grow up a little bit, and then you can truly assess you know, how he's developing. Right. Okay. okay. So then, one day, one very ordinary day, when he was two years old, mm -hmm. he spoke for the first time. <laughs> my father was holding him, the evening news was on, and David points to the TV and says, there's Jack Kennedy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> of course. Yep. Yeah. Just, there's no mama. No, I didn't take time for mama, dad, dad. I'm going to go right to the, there's Jack Kennedy. <laughs> and what I love about this story is David's sort of extreme casualness with the president of the United States. Oh, he doesn't boy. say, there's President Kennedy or there's John Kennedy. He goes right for that nickname, Jack. You know, Jack Kennedy. There's Jack Kennedy. You know that guy, Jack Kennedy? Yeah, he's on TV. Did you see him? Later, my dad, when, when my dad would be asked why he thought David waited until that day to speak, my dad would always say, well, he just didn't have anything important to say before that day. <laughs> Which worked for me. Though I was told that I was born talking, so <laughs> literally. So I think my poor little brother was just waiting his turn. 
um, and in building long-distance relationships with presidents along the way, you know. Yeah. Oh, and right after that day, his eyes uncrossed. Wow. Ugh, amazing. So yeah. Wow. So that's the story. Oh, yeah. that is good. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great, Sue. I love one. it. Yeah. So did your did your brother ever tell this story? I'm just curious. You know, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if he ever did. Um, when he was born, he was given the life expectancy of ten. Yeah. And he lived to be 23. Oh, yeah. amazing. Which I'm eternally grateful for. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. Anyway, I learned a lot from him, and oh. I still do. I can't imagine. Yeah. 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 Okay, who's next? <laughs> Come on, Shannon, you're next. Oh, no. No, you're okay. next. It's your turn. Come yeah, on. Shannon, your you turn. should go. All right, Come okay, on. okay, okay. Right. I, I can tell a story. Okay. All right. <clears throat> All right, so. Yeah. This is a story about my mom, uh, but it's also a story about a toaster. So I'm okay. five years old, and I have two cousins, and they're staying at our house because their mom, my aunt, is in the hospital, and she's diagnosed with breast cancer, and I want to stop right there. My aunt lived a good, long life, so that's not what this story is about. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but on the morning that this story takes place, my mom has no idea that, you know, things are going to end well, and that mm. she says no. And so... Um, all she knows is that it's morning, and she's got kids, and they're hungry, and we're out of cereal. Mm -hmm. So we're in the kitchen at our house, and I grew up in a yellow, stuccoed rambler on a dead-end street. This is becoming a country song in the suburb <laughs> of Los Angeles. And I remember the stove was pea green because it was the 70s. <laughs> And there was a wooden bread box on the counter that said bread oh. because it was the 70s. And the floor, the tile, was yellow and orange and had brown around all the oh, edges yeah, yeah. because yeah. It, it was, was the, the 70s. 70s. Yeah, yeah, so that's great. my mom's making eggs because we're out of cereal. And even though everything is really stressful, I was so excited because my cousins were at my house, you know, in the morning for breakfast. And that's, you know, they're at my house. I know it's really bad and the adults are stressed, but still my five-year-old self just cannot stop being excited about the fact that they're gonna sleep over. Oh, and I, I should actually mention that my mom was about seven and a half months pregnant with my brother. Oh, wow. So we're in the kitchen and there's a Donna Summer song playing on the radio. Oh, and it's also hot. It's like over 100 degrees, and it's really early in the morning. So for my mom, it's, you know, three kids, she's pregnant, no cereal, pea green stove, 102 degrees, wow. right? And her sister's in the hospital because she's been diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29 with two kids wow. under the age of 12. So my mom's just making eggs, doing her best, and she's exhausted. And we're kids, so we're not helping at all. <laughs> And I should also mention, as if there isn't enough, you know, wrong, that there's a smog alert. So, in Los Angeles at the time, so if you go outside, you can't run around or breathe, stuff like that. So, wow. my mom finishes the eggs, and she turns around, and she puts some bread in the toaster, and Donna Summer is singing, you know, just to set the stage, and it's, you know, someone left the cake out in the rain. Remember that weird song? <laughs> I don't think I can take it because it took so long to bake it. And then suddenly, we all smell something going wrong. You know, it's something electrical, like sulfur, burnt wire, something like that. And then this giant blue arc flies out of the toaster. And it's just <gasps> this perfect blue arc of electricity, right? And, and I'll never have that recipe again, you know. And there's this charge in the air, and there's all of these cartoonish zapping sounds, which I still remember, and more blue arcs, and there is so much smoke. And I remember my mom standing between us and the toaster, and she has one hand on her tummy, and the other hand's like holding the spatula like a weapon. And Donna Summer keeps singing, and it's always in this moment that I tell the story that I think, was it Donna Summer or was it Dionne Warwick? Who would you like, was this the right one? But I do think it's Donna Summer. I do, anyway. And so my mom reaches behind and she grabs a wooden spoon and she's crouched at the knees and you know, she's ready and the toaster is just rattling and there's smoke everywhere. And she takes the wooden spoon, which is brilliant because this is, this is an electrical situation. Yeah, right, yeah, and she right, scoops right. the spoon under the power cord and it's, it has fabric around it 
because it's the it's 70s. 70s. Yeah, right. And she pulls the cord out of the wall and this blue line of electricity follows it and then there's this giant pop and then it's over. There's no lights, no oh. toaster, no Donna Summer, nothing. <laughs> and then my mom drops the wooden spoon in the sink and she's shaking her hand a little because slightly electrocuted and she grabs two oven mitts and she picks up the dead toaster and she's holding it up and away from her body and the cord is trailing behind her and it's all, it's just all black and discolored and just, it's broken. And she walks the toaster past us and we're just like mouths open, staring. <laughs> and she goes around the, t the table and to the back door and she kicks the back door open really hard. <laughs> and with one perfect motion, my mom, I mean, in the space of time that it takes that door to slam, she lifts that toaster over her head, you know, just her stomach, you know, just ready. And it's still smoking. And she tosses it out the door. And I need to say right now that when that toaster is in the air, it's like the, some, you know, the nothing before something. It's just like this epic moment. And then it hits, exactly, it hits the driveway and it bounces, and it skids, and there's pieces of toast just flying oh out of it. And just before the screen door closes, in a moment of genius, she takes the oven mitts off and just tosses them <laughs> for good measure, just out on the driveway as well, and then the door slams. Oh, wow. So she turns back to the kitchen, and we're just sitting. We haven't moved. It's just unbelievable and she brings us our eggs from the counter and you know she does it like diner style which is kind of cool you know, just get the two and then the one on the forearm she sets them all down on the table one two three and then she looks at us and I swear to God and she says nobody gets toast <laughs> oh no oh thank you for that shit Oh my gosh. Well, I yeah. did I did ask yeah. my mom about yeah. it, you know, like what happened? I mean, exactly. is this what we do in life yeah. when we're done with you? Know, and she said everything was broken and that was one thing I could fix. That is a great story, Shannon. That's just <laughs> a great story. Yeah, right. Yeah, really, yeah. really good. Awesome. All right, so who's next? You are. <gasps> yeah. No. Sylvia, yes. No. Come oh, on. You gotta go, you gotta go. Sylvia. Okay, all right, all right. I'll come go. On. I'll come go. on, come on. I'll go next. What? Actually, this is a family lore story okay. and a ghost story. Oh, okay. And it's really cool. spooky. Okay, okay. So, go. When I was little, growing up in Guatemala, we had a boogeyman and also a boogeywoman. Mm. Yeah, so the boogeyman is this spirit ghost called El Sombrerón, wearing a large black hat, wandering solitary streets, trying to find young ladies he could hurt and make them fall into his spell. Ooh. Yeah, la abuela will tell us girls about El Sombrerón as a cautionary tale so that we wouldn't walk alone at night. And boys needed to watch out for La Ciguanaba. Now, La Ciguanaba is this woman with a beautiful body that attracts men traveling alone. She appears to men in solitary streets, and once she's let them see her face, which is the face of a mare with her eyes out of their sockets Ooh. and red as blood, Ew. she would then take them to a river. Really? Okay. Yeah, well. That's what yeah. I would do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what it happened is that my dad had already been missing for 72 hours. And that day, I remember telling my mom that I thought La Ciguanaba had taken him. Oh. Yeah. And in some traditions, they say that she takes them to a river mm. so that they would lose their souls. Oh. <laughs> but I was too little to know those details. I was just hoping that my dad had a more magical experience because a woman with almost the same abilities as a mermaid couldn't be that bad, right? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. So I was six years old, and my dad didn't come to pick us up at school like he always did. Instead, it was my dad's friend who is usually a hilarious guy, but only this time 
He had a somber expression and drove in silence until we got home. I remember seeing my mom, who was pregnant with her fifth child, sitting by the phone. Sometimes it rang incessantly, which would light her face, changing the whole energy in the room. But other times, she would just stare at it for hours, hoping it would ring with some good news. You see, my father was kidnapped at a very repressive time during Guatemala Civil War in the 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I was only six at that time, but uh, it was only a few years later when I got fully aware of the seriousness of that situation. Mm -hmm. Journalists like my dad were disappearing every day. Mm. Some of their bodies appear later, but most of them never return. They just went missing. And people were forced to assume the worst. All sort of knew that the oppressive government had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so many things happened at that time. Lots of people died. Yeah. Sometimes bombs would explode near my school oh, in the city. But nothing compared to the tragedy in the countryside. Anyway. Yeah, it was a tough time for everybody in Guatemala. And there I was, little me decided that my father was taken by La Ciguanaba. <laughs> Thankfully, my dad was one of the few, if not the only journalist that made it back from captivity. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and he spoke very little about what had happened at that time. But he told us children that he had been to Miami <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But I knew the truth. <laughs> I knew that he didn't let La Ciguanaba show him her face and take him to the river. Mm. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Sylvia. Okay, Sylvia. We need to hear more about that story. Yeah, like seriously, I want yeah. more. <laughs> There's more. more. Okay. But, but next time. Okay, next but you time. promise next time? Promise? Okay. Yeah. We're sitting promise. around. Promise? Seriously? Sure, oh, hey, guys. Okay. Oh, 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 hey, Zippy. Hey, Zippy. Zippy. Zippy, join us. Join us. Okay, what's up? We're, yeah. we're, we're telling stories. Yeah. yeah, family lore stories. You know, our stories that didn't make sense then and do now and right. you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. sweet. Yeah. yeah, and Day is actually next. Yes, Day is oh, next. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, I can go next. Yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, look, there's the moon. Huh? What? Where? Where? Well, it's just sort of peeking out the trees right there. Do you see it? No. No, I don't uh, see it. I, oh, really? It's point, right there. Where is it? Point to it, Dave. Point. Oh, I can't point to it. You can't? What do you, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, okay, so like in the Hmong culture, you can't point at the moon or your ear will get cut. Okay, so I'm sorry, say that again? It's a Hmong superstition that if you point at the moon, your ear will get cut. Wow. Okay. Where does that superstition come from? You know, that's a very good question. So, um, here's a story. Hey, hey, Zippy, jump in, okay? Sure. Okay, great. Okay. Right. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> How do you get music? We're on the beach. What? Shannon, yeah. you have to just go with it. Okay. Yeah. We're just going with it. it. It's going to be okay, I promise. I'm just going to go with yeah. it. I'm going okay. with it. We're going yeah. with it. Again, Zippy? Okay. A long time ago, the stars in the moon lived here on Earth. They blessed the towns they traveled through with light and magic. When one shined their light, the other threw magic dust in the air. They filled many people with joy and wonder. Some even believed if you were blessed with the dust of the moon and the stars, you'd have happiness for the rest of your life because they were filled with love and joy. <laughs> we're so happy! Ooh, we're so happy! <laughs> when I'm with you, I shine so brightly Cause you can light the darkest nights You make me laugh and I think you're funny We sparkle and shine like chromium skies and when you're happy, it makes me happy too. I love shining with you. You. I love shining with you. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the 
the stars and the moon were inseparable. It said that the stars would dance around the moon and make the moon laugh. The moon would bounce around and chase the stars. The stars would laugh. They laughed so hard you could feel the earth rumble with happiness. They loved earth. They loved humans. They loved each other. I love you. You hold my hand as we face the unknown. Jumping right in, your light never dims. You share your magic with the world's creatures. That's just who you are, humbly charged. And when you're glowing, it makes the world glow too. I love shining with you. I love shining with you. One day, the stars and the moon traveled to a faraway village. Oh, look at the village. Look at that. These village people did not know about the stars and the moon. As they tumbled in, shining light and throwing magic dust, the village people hid away and cowered in. What is that? What is they were afraid of these mysterious beings. When you're glowing, it makes the world glow too. Noticing how afraid they were, the stars dimmed their lights. The moon hadn't noticed and continued to shine. <laughs> Scared of how bright the moon was, a child came out and kicked the moon. I hate you! The moon got kicked so hard, it flew away into the sky. Whoa! As the moon got further and further away, the village people laughed and began pointing at the moon. Taunting it. Go back to where you came from. Yeah, get out of here. Get out of here. You don't belong here. Yeah, you go. Get out of here. The stars became angry. And they sliced a bit of everyone's ears for pointing at the moon. And they did this as the moon cried while flying further and further away. It wasn't fair what they did to you. Pushing you round till your gold turned black and blue. The stars then leapt into the sky, chasing after the moon, weeping as they did. <laughs> they felt so betrayed by the humans, so hurt that the humans they adored would hurt the moon. <laughs> Sometimes the beauty of the light make people run and hide, cause it shines something inside true. As they disappeared into the sky, their tears became fireflies. <sighs> Lighting the world only when needed, but even then, only barely. So shine like the moon. And that's why we don't point at the moon. brought an audience that was incredible yeah. well I tried, so I tried. And, and that great story from your culture yeah. too. yeah well, so good so actually good. I created that story what I made it up no wait 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 what yeah yeah okay so I asked my family once my younger siblings were old enough to start wondering about it and 
Okay, no one really knows where that superstition came from. So I made up this story since just because wasn't working as an answer. Yeah, you know, it gives them something to believe in. Uh, kind of like Santa. Wow. Um, maybe I'll tell them it's not real when they're older. Or maybe not. No, this is yeah. sweet. I yeah, love this. No, yeah. no, yeah, no, this is, yeah. you should tell the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. <laughs> tell the story. Yes. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I had to. I had to. That's it. That's the story for me. Zippy, I think it's your turn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yes. At our house, Elfie the Christmas elf is very real. Oh. So, Elfie is this doll like elf dressed in red who comes to our house every year. She shows up on December 1st and stays until Christmas Day, usually. And she does silly mischief around the house and reports back to Santa. <laughs> we tell the girls that they have to be extra kind and helpful during this time because Elfie is always watching. And that Santa decides who's on the naughty and the nice list. My daughter, Nellie, who is six, believes in Elfie wholeheartedly. So much so that last year during our move to a new house, she saw Elfie laying lifeless in our Christmas storage tub. Oh. Oops. Uh, but nonetheless, her Christmas spirit was not yet broken. We simply told her that the magic of Christmas brings Elfie back to life. Yeah. And that during the rest of the year, her spirit retreats back to the North Pole. Perfect. She was satisfied enough with yeah. our answer. And, but to this day, she still insists that we check on Elfie every now and then in the storage bin to ensure that her body is being kept safe. Well, okay, so see, Nellie is also learning about compassion for another being. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's good, right? That's so good. When, when do you tell her that Elfie's not real? Yeah. Uh, someday, uh, but now we've got one-year-old Dode believing in Elfie. Yeah, so the tradition continues. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. those Elfie sing like you? Oh, of course. She goes, ba 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 I love shining with you, darling. I love shining with you. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Um, okay, I want to uh, just say a, a, a quick word here. Um, there was a video, um, a very disturbing video about, from a local high school, a couple of local high school girls taunting another high school girl. And I don't know if anybody's seen it, it's very, very ugly. And racial slurs and encouragement for the other girl to kill herself. And it was just very, very ugly. I'm concerned with what's happening with some of our younger women. I know as, um, as the creator of Island of Discarded Women that uh, the assumption is that we are dealing with issues with those of us that have lived a while. But there are so many things that are going on for our young women right now um, our little Olympian, Suni Lee, who Day is related to. Yes. Um, I mean, you can, can't just see it. Well, she's got her mask on now, but yeah. Yeah. She and her, some of her girlfriends were pepper sprayed, and Asian slurs were, were yelled at them. If you live in Texas and you are a, a childbearing woman, uh, your rights and freedoms by the people who tout rights and freedoms um, are being taken away. So I think we need to support each other. We need to realize that here on Island of Discarded Women, I am so blessed to have these young mentors. And I'm learning so much from them, and I'm so honored. And I think what we need to do is we need to lift all of us up, uh, because there's a, still a lot to do. OK, on that note, thank you. On that note, I want to bring up our special musical guest, Kat Perkins. You ready to do the do? She's ready to do the do. And it's so good that we called each other and we said, oh no, it's the red-black thing. We're going to do the red-black thing. I know. And then I went pink. And then and Eric Warner on the guitar here, he's going to be supporting her. So for those of you who do, and for those of you who do know Kat and need to know more about Kat, um, she's a singer-songwriter. She's nationally recognized motivational speaker. She's a nonprofit foundation founder. 
I got that from your Facebook page. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for stalking. Yeah, I do. I stalk. <laughs> and she's a super cool dresser, as you can tell. And she was a finalist on NBC's The Voice. So, Kat, welcome to the island. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for all being here. Three things. I got three things I want to ask you. Okay, right. so number one, there's a cell phone video of you singing Adele's Someone Like You at 6.30 a.m. in the Amsterdam airport yes. in 2013. Yes. And supposedly that video caught the attention of one of the producers on The Voice, and you were invited to a blind audition, and that's how you how that, that process started. Okay, yes. that's all cool, you know, whatever. This is my question. It's, and somebody in the, in the video says, what time is it? And you say, it's 6.30 a.m. and you all have beers in your hand. <laughs> no. Big, tall ones. Yes. So what I wanna know is, were you flying overnight from Minnesota to Amsterdam and it's like midnight in your time? Or is that what you do when you're on the road? Is you drink beer at 6.30 in the morning? Or well. is that? It's such a loaded question. And so, where were you headed? Right. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the gentleman in the video that says what time is it is Mr. Warner right here. Oh, okay, okay. Mr. Yeah, yeah. Warner. Yeah. So here is what happened. We, uh, we started to dedicate our time um, to performing for our men and women overseas, our troops that are, that are deployed in the Middle East. And this was our first trip over there. So what we were doing is we were coming back from that. We had spent two weeks in the Middle East performing at an undisclosed location and having a, the time of our lives and the first time doing this. But we were jet lagged coming back through Amsterdam to Minneapolis and there was a piano yeah. in the airport. So it's pretty stunning. The real truth is that the boys said, sing something, you should sing something. And I said, no, 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 it's 6.30. I'm gonna wake people up, I'm a loud singer, I don't kumbaya in the airport. And then Heineken took over. Yeah. No, it's pretty brilliant. You just go to YouTube, Cat Perkins, <laughs> Amsterdam, beer, 6.30 a.m. Yes. No, no I, yeah. It and it was the, the best 90 seconds of my life, so. It's really cool. Okay, question number two. Yes. You have a Christmas show tour coming up. I do. Called North Country Christmas, yes. right? And I want to know if you are going to sing the amazing arrangement of Old Holy Night that Aaron Gabriel uh, did for you that was released as a music video last Christmas. Tell yes. us about that. So um, it's one of the only times in my life, and I've been singing since I was three years old and professionally since I was about 16. Um, it's the only time in my life that I get a standing ovation in the middle of, of shows. It's very, it stunts the whole thing. Yeah. Where I'm like, I don't know what's happening. We're just doing Old Holy Night. It's um, so because good. it's one of my favorites. So it's always a staple in our Christmas shows. And last year we got the awesome opportunity to film in Minneapolis and sort of make it a different narrative around yes. that song. She's in the rubble of a building that came down on Lake Street during the unrest after George Floyd murder. And you see images yes. of the protests and of cleanup operations yes. and yards full of food donation bags yes. and it's really moving. And the, the arrangement of Oh Holy Night is just unbelievable. That's a, an amazing arrangement, yeah. Aaron Gabriel on that and then the video by Nina Denio who helped me storyboard the whole thing and put it all together. So that's another thing, you go to YouTube and you go Cat Perkins, Oh Holy Night. Yes. Okay, that's another thing. Really okay. cool. Question number three. So <laughs> yeah. your experience on The Voice was what motivated you to write the song that you're gonna sing right now. Yes. Right, so tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so um, what I didn't know at the time is being on a reality show um, was going to be very life-changing. I knew something was brewing in the, in the process, yeah. but I didn't really understand what I would learn from you know, being in front of 15 million people watching the show and having the whole you know, Midwest, Minnesota mostly, lifting me up and a lot of amazing women and friends, and it just spiraled everywhere. Um, and I think the word that came to mind after that experience was the word fearless, which really I've been experiencing that word since I was a little girl, wanting to be a singer, being in front of people, starting to write songs, and then traveling the nation, and, and only following in the footsteps of my amazing great-grandmother and grandmother and my dad and my sister. But this truly redefined the word fearless in my life, and it continues till this day. Wow. Kat Perkins oh and Eric gosh, Warner, go for it. Oh, you're unreal. Thanks for having me. We want to do this very special song, and of course, every time I do this song, I want to dedicate it to everyone that's in the room. 
And my goal always is for everyone to redefine what the word fearless is in all of your, your worlds, your, your, your minds, your professional life, your personal lives. Uh, I think it's very important for us to understand what fear is and what fear is not. And um, I hope you love it and I hope you connect with the lyrics. I also want to say that um, we recorded a video to this song and we recorded that video in the women's club seven years ago, almost to the day. Which I, I know, it's cool. Gives me the shivers. So if you check it out, it's right here where we did everything and this song. So we hope you love it. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What crazy chances would you take? It's all right here in front of you. All right here in front of you. There's no love without heartbreak. Holding out for someday, but someday's always late. Counting on that one day, but you don't have to wait if you live, live. Tonight we're fearless What if you lived your life out loud Not in the silence of your doubt I know their words can cut so deep But who cares what they think what if you let yourself be proud? If you live, live fearless. If you love, love fearless. Life on overdrive. Take your chance and fly tonight. to lose we're flying high tonight me and you no limits no regrets no tomorrow tonight we're fearless what would you do if you were afraid what crazy chances would you take if you live live fearless if you love love fearless yeah life on overdrive What would you do if you weren't afraid? Thank you. Mr. Eric Warner. Thank you.
Thank you, Kat. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please welcome my guest for the conversation, Melissa Olson. Come on up, Melissa. Thanks for coming. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, it's so cool. It's so cool that you're here. All right, so Melissa, I'm just going to share with, kind of go down your bio here a little bit. There again, I've been stalking you as well. Um, Thank you. You're a writer, a yes. radio producer. You are co-managing editor of Mini Culture with KFAI. Mm -hmm. You are deputy director at McGizzy, a nonprofit whose mission is to nurture the educational, social, economic, and cultural development of American Indian youth. You are a tribal citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. And you are an intergenerational survivor of indigenous child removal. Yes. Your mother's Ojibwe. She is. And her first few years was spent in a Catholic orphanage and then several foster homes before she was adopted by a white couple in New Ulm, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. When she was seven years old. Yes. Okay. You were in college before you realized that your mother's adoption was actually part of the Indian Adoption Project, which started in 1958 and ended in 1967. Um, what is the Indian Adoption Project? Well, before I go there, yeah. I will tell a quick story. Sure. Um, I had, you know, some background, but like your, your crew who was up here, there was a lot of storytelling in my family, and I was an adult before I kind of finally started to put the pieces together, which is, you know, over time, and I think she told us, you know, I, you know, mom lived, um, well, at first she told us that she was hatched from an egg. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that was during the days of like Mork and Mindy, so oh, it was oh. you could be hatched. For, that was a real thing. Yeah, and did you believe her? I did. I thought okay. that was very cool. Okay, I really. Did she have like the clothes like Mark did? She would if if you know she made her own stuff. Okay, if, so you know. yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but she would if she could. Sure, she would have been that person. Um, so when I got to school, um, there really was no mention of you know, the Indian Adoption Project or anything like that. Um, so, I, I mean, just to jump in, so yeah. you, you knew she was adopted. She knew she was adopted. Yes, all of that. It just wasn't, you weren't aware that it was part of this program. Correct. Yeah, go ahead. So I was, a, you know, I'd already graduated four years at the University of Minnesota. I was a graduate student in American Studies. I had a friend who was um, a year ahead of me, and another woman, she was an adoptee, she was Korean American, had been adopted internationally. And there was a little workshop um, in American studies about Korean adoptees. And my friend who was from Turtle Mountain, um, which is a community, an Ojibwe community in northern um, North Dakota, mm -hmm. said, oh yeah, well, you know, it's very similar to the Indian Adoption Project. And I, I had, no, had no sense of what she was talking about, wow. just no sense at all. I must have just shrugged, like, I don't know what that yeah. is. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, but I also knew that um, I had been sort of attracted to the subject of that talk because my mom was adopted. And so when she sort of told me that piece, it was a little bit of a thunderbolt. Yeah, I bet. Mm -hmm. So the Indian Adoption Project was, it, so there were the boarding schools. Yes. And then they started to phase out. And then, then it was sort of a concentrated effort to find another way to get Native children into whatever they thought if they were trying to do with you know as far as getting them into get into solid homes or better homes the point was was to get uh, families it was cheaper actually wasn't it it was the boarding schools cost the government money mm -hmm. and so this would be hey why don't we just get families we'll just instill in them that this is um, this is a compassionate thing to do, mm -hmm. is to adopt, because the native children all need to be adopted, right? That was the assumption. And uh, they could not grow up in their own communities. Mm -hmm. So when you found that out, you were telling me about finding um, papers of former Minnesota governor, Elmer L. Anderson. Mm -hmm. He was the president of the Child Welfare League of America. Mm -hmm. And you, were, you made the comment, you said Minnesota was sort of ground zero for the Indian Adoption Project because of Elmer L. Anderson's uh, involvement. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. So I was, um, I was a year or so out of graduate school. I actually left my graduate program because I couldn't find enough information for a dissertation. 
and and it was super frustrating, right? About um, this subject. About this subject. Yeah. I had proposed it as um, a dissertation subject, went over to um, what is called the Social Welfare History Library at the University of Minnesota, which is in the Anderson Library, yeah. and um, you know, looked at the same two folders of stuff that, that are listed in the bibliographies of a few, very few papers that are um, published on the subject, and didn't really find anything, and grew pretty discouraged, and I left graduate school for that reason, largely because I felt like, well, maybe there just isn't anything there. So I was mm, like a year, year and a half, two years out of graduate school, and it weighed heavily on my mind, you know, that I hadn't, um, hadn't found anything worth writing about. It was still, you know, sort of like a lump in my throat. So I, I'm a nerd, and the Minnesota History Center website, they just published all their digital material. Oh, yeah. Right? So I'm nerding out. And so I, I search using this new, it's like 2008, I search Indian Adoption Project, and I get a hit. And it is a hit for a pamphlet in the papers of Elmer L. Anderson. So I go over there. It was like Rambo trained in archival research as sure, a doctoral sure. student, yeah. right? I don't know. It's a lot of training. It's very intense. And so I go over there, and um, there are like four boxes of materials in Elmer L. Anderson's papers. And that sort of was the avalanche of this understanding. Um, Elmer L. Anderson was um, Minnesota's governor in 1960 to 1962. Mm -hmm. And he became the the vice president, and then the president of the Child Welfare League of America. He would be what used to be called a compassionate conservative. He was very concerned for child welfare and for, for children, I would say, you know, that much um, to his credit. But he was also convinced that Indian children would be better off placed outside their birth homes and their birth families and their communities in white homes. And from about 1960 to probably right about 1968, he was sort of the leading politician that carried that banner all over the place. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, wow. Okay, so in 2014, you start working on a documentary mm -hmm. to tell your mother's story. Uh, and you chronicle some other, other women that were also adoptees uh, through the Indian Adoption Project. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, you release it. And it's an, it's an award-winning, it's now an award-winning documentary called Stolen Childhoods. And the stories that we're hearing from these four women, you're the radio producer, the daughter, and you're also talking to other daughters of the women. So we're getting that intergenerational effect. It's so beautifully, beautifully done. What motivated you in the first place to do that documentary? Yeah, so again, I'm like this Rambo-trained... She's Rambo trained. <laughs> I say that because, like, I hear it was. It works for me. I'm going to call you that now. You She's know, Rambo every time, trained. I like Sly Stallone, Rambo. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've got this just immense amount of training. You know, it. You know, they put you through 80 hours a week in graduate school. At least that was my experience for three and a quarter years, and so I've got all of this ability, right? And I'm still sort of um, crackling with this desire to figure this out. I was working by then for the state of Minnesota in Hennepin County in the 4th Judicial District as a child welfare advocate. Oh, okay. Very intense job. I had a, a good friend who is um, Métis. She's, um, she's a community leader in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'd known her husband uh, very well, and her son is, is, is a politician in, in Ontario. And she said, you should come up here and present at this conference in Winnipeg. All of what you've done, all of the stuff about these papers, it's very interesting. Come up here and, and tell us about it. And so I was looking for a way to do that, and it was one of these sort of dry things. You have to create a conference poster. <laughs> and um, I was talking to my coworker, and her name is Lynn Braveheart. I don't know exactly when we stumbled upon the fact that her mother was also an adoptee. And her mother's from South Dakota. They're from the Rosebud uh, community in South Dakota, which is a, a Lakota community. And at that point, you know, it was just like having someone to sort of share and talk to um, about sure. that experience sure. for the first time, which is very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. To like just say, hey, this, I relate to what you're saying right back to me. It's, it's an intense, kind of beautiful thing. And she's also an artist. And I asked her if she would make this poster. She said, of course, sure, yeah, let's do it. So we made this beautiful thing. And I brought it up to Winnipeg. And that was sort of the start 
From there, we understood that there was at least one other woman working in the fourth judicial district whose mother was also an adoptee. And I had met a woman in the community um, through the Tiwahe Foundation whose mother was also an adoptee who just stood up and said, my mom's an adoptee, and she went back to Manitoba to find her father. And this is our story. And I was like, wow, that's... You d we, we, we weren't yeah. hearing those stories yeah, at that no, point. Yeah, no, right, right, right. And um, that really touched me. So at that point, uh, we decided that we were going to embark or we were going to start on this storytelling project. And we pitched... Uh, Todd Melby at KFAI here in Minneapolis, and it was super nerve-wracking. I had practiced my like three-minute elevator pitch, right? Yeah. I didn't pitch on paper. I Did didn't you use the Rambo thing? Did you use the Rambo thing? No. Oh, darn. You should have used the Rambo no. thing. But um, he, uh, he said, you know what? I think you're the perfect person to tell this story. How can I help? Great. That's what you want to hear, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the documentary is so... Um, so informative, and I, what's so interesting to me was the mother-daughter element of the documentary. So it's not, oh, I'm going to talk to my mother, and we're going to learn, uh, hear from all these the adoptees themselves, but you also hear from the daughters, and I think that that is where where I get a better sense of what trauma is, and you know how we overcome that. My question to you then, as a radio producer. So you're the radio producer, and you're producing the documentary, and you're also telling your mother's own story, and your, your mother's own story also affects you. Mm -hmm. So how do you put all of that together? Okay, that's the first part of my question. Second part of my question is, did you hear any stories from, from even from your mother that you had never heard before? I can't say that I did, no. Okay. Um, you know, we're very close, so I'm lucky to have heard a lot of those stories uh, over the years. Um, my mom's got a great sense of humor. She's, she's fun. Um, she sounds fun in the documentary. She, she sounds really fun, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I take that back. Um, she did talk about her foster care experience oh. a great deal more than what I was used to hearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, she had been in and out of two foster homes before she was finally adopted. And I think she was trying to sort of... It's always been, you know, she spent most of her life sort of puzzling the whole thing together yeah. through documents and records and other people's recollections. So that was a little bit, maybe I'd only heard a little bit of that, but I heard a little bit more. Um, remind me, what was your first question? No, no, the, no, the first question, what was it like to wear the different hats as oh, far as yeah, the radio yeah. producer? Oh, thank and... God I didn't edit the piece. Oh, that's right. You didn't have to edit the piece. Okay. And that that's, right. that's really important. I was yeah. in Chicago at this conference and there was this woman and who I also related to, she was talking about the fact that she had um, made a documentary about her divorce. And when asked, like, how did you do that? How do you take, you know, material that you've recorded, very intimate material, sort of diary-like material, and then put it into a, you know, a documentary? She says, well, you get a really good editor to help yeah. you do that. And that's essentially what we yeah. did. Yeah, okay, I guess that's the answer. Yeah. You know, some of the things that your mom talks about, she talks about growing up in an all-white community in New Ulm and um, being convinced that she was also German and, uh, and that she was just, she knew she wasn't because she was brown-skinned, but she thought, well, whatever. And then she was really popular, except a lot of the boys weren't allowed to date her. True. So, I mean, you have this, oh, you have this stuff that just makes you sigh. One question I want to ask you, when you and I were talking before this, you were telling me about, um, we were talking about, and then I did some research as well, your adoptive grandparents, who adopted your mother, are white, mm -hmm. and uh, in 1962, New Ulm held a centennial celebration of the Sioux Uprising. You know what, like you do, right? And um, that your adoptive grandfather played the captain of the frontier militia mm -hmm. that fought the Dakota. What is that like at the dinner table? A lot of silence? Yeah. I mean, really, seriously, what is that like? I can tell you, um, I was in New Ulm. I was, um, we had been sort of invited to 
a rummage sale that my grandma was hosting. She, she was really good. She had these giant rummage sales. And I was trying to sell this um, massage chair that I had because I had broken up with this guy. It was his chair. And I wanted to sell okay, it. Okay, I don't right? think we need okay. to hear any more about that. Anyways, no, it was like a real chair. It was, you know. And so I'm like convinced, okay, I'm going to get like 50 bucks for this thing. So I take it down to my grandma's. And in, in the meantime, um, they were having a auction at this place in New Ulm called Ginkles, which New Ulm is one of these places where everybody knows... Everybody knows everybody. Ginkles. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And you go there, and if, like, at the auction sale, it's like people selling their stuff to each other oh, again, oh, and again and again and again yeah, and again and again. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I was just curious. I wanted to go down and do something else besides hang out at the rummage sale. And I go and I get this... Um, you have to bid on, like... A box. So I bid this box, 15 bucks, because it has this um, copy of uh, a newspaper, the New Ulm Journal from 1962. Got it on the first grab, 15 bucks. Bring it home. And the title is something like 115 Pioneer Volunteers Attack Indians or something like that. And I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and I wanted more from my grandparents than what they had ever given me in the way of information or story or perspective or really anything to maybe a little bit of acknowledgement or something and yeah. um and maybe I didn't know how to ask for it right yeah, yeah. and so I sort of I, I kind of placed it on the dining room table and I just let it sit there finally nobody said a word and everybody had seen it but nobody said a word and finally I was I showed it to my grandmother I said do you remember this this is you know 1962 my mom would have been a teenager and she looked at the the title and the title had something in it about sham battle she said sham battle my ass one of those eras grazed your grandfather's brow and he had to have stitches wow I don't understand what do you mean it grazed his brow well he was playing the captain of the defenders because my grandfather was also the captain of the National Guard at Fort Ridgely. He was a very serious military uh, person in real life. Yeah. And um, I just, I, I, you know, and that's all. That was it. That was shut down. There was no more to say after that. Yeah, I just wonder what that's like to, um, to know that the history, the Indian Adoption Project, which obviously your grandparents were, you know, were, took part in, and that's why they adopted your mom. Let me tell you this. Yes. I don't think that my grandparents were at all well-equipped at the time that they adopted an Indian child, right? I don't think anybody said, hey, you know what, Ver, Hank, this is what's going to happen, you know? Sure, sure. And so not everybody learned at the same speed, but it all happened in real time. And I get that um, the thinking is, I am doing something good. We are doing something good by adopting this child. And that's the thinking. But the that th- thinking is, is sort of what they called stimulated by the work of like the Child Welfare yeah, exactly, League of America. Exactly. Right. No, exactly, exactly. That is where they would have been taking sort of that, that ethos from. Right. So I gave you your assignments with the, the YouTube stuff with Kat Perkins. You have to go online. It's on Spotify. It's on, Sound, it's on SoundCloud. Stolen Childhoods. You have to have to listen to it. And then you have to report back to me. And give me a thing, okay? I'm serious. It's just stunning. So you called me this morning and said this weekend is the fifth anniversary of the release of this documentary. And it's been heard in Australia. It's been heard all over. And, and obviously there's indigenous communities in Australia as well. And, yeah. and tell us about that experience and what that's done for you as far as putting that story out. Anyway, just tell us what that experience is. I want to know how this affects you. I think th- one of the most important parts of telling this kind of personal story um, is the letting go of the story, is oh. to let it go out into the world. Yeah. And to let it, you know, um, once it's out, sort of live its own life and sort of do its own work. And that is um, an incredible feeling of, um, well, it's, it's scary, right? But it's also um, relief. Um, accomplishment. Um, it's a great bookmark. It's a great sense of letting go. How does it feel to have your story out there, though? I never really told my story in the doc. Yeah, but you're part of your yeah. mother's story yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. How does that feel? Um, it feels um, now, like five years later, it feels um, still. Um, I don't feel it as much. At the time, it was so necessary, right? It yeah. was so, um, yeah. you know, that lump in my throat finally sort of releases. And um, 
things that I had sort of learned, things that I was passionate about, found a home with other people, and that, that felt great. So you said you didn't really tell your story in the documentary. Yeah. Do you feel like you found more of, or, or sort of a door open, like an open door to your story by telling the, the, your mom's story? And, and find, as far as maybe some yes. questions you had about your own sense of identity? I also stopped telling her story in a way, and I've told a little bit of her story tonight, but one of the things I think um, that I've learned from other intergenerational survivors is that um, we can tend to hold our parents' stories for them. Yeah, right. And um, that experience allowed me to see that I had been doing some of that, that it wasn't always healthy, and that I could, in so many ways, choose to say, that's not a piece I can hold right now. So do you think that's because you want to sort of go back in time and fix it, or you want it to be different? What do you think? Um, What's coming up for you for that? I think it... I think um, it happens pretty organically, Yeah. right? Um, I'm an empathetic person naturally, and my mom has always been, you know, she was, she was never hitting us over the head with their stories. It was always lighthearted. It was always these, you know, it was like little jokes, little stories, little things, very humorous. And so I was lucky in that way um, because I don't, you know, some of the people in the documentary do not have that experience. It's yeah, much right. more difficult for them. Right. Um, so it happens kind of organically, but you know there are difficult pieces where I just I could say, hey, that's not a piece, you know, and in it allowed us to have more adult conversations yeah. about that. So did it feel like a sense of release as well? Like, okay, I told my mother's story, helped tell the tell the story. It's out there. Now I don't have to tell it anymore. Does it feel like that? Not exactly. I could say I could sort of. Um, you know, say um, to myself first, right? If I'm feeling some kind of way about this, I'm gonna choose to now tell her that. Oh. And maybe I realized that through the process of making the documentary. It took us two, two years to do. Sure. So it was yeah. a good long time, which is probably the right way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna ask you one, one final thing about the documentary sure. that is really moving to me is there's a powwow um, a welcome home powwow. Mm -hmm. We hear the powwow in the documentary, we hear it going on and the dances and the, and the songs, and you hear your mother talking to other adoptees. But my question for you, and this is just, it just bridges on what you were just saying. My question for you was, what was that like for you to be at that powwow with the intergenerational uh, situation going on for you? I think for me it was it was hard. I um, I just remember feeling somewhat protective of my mom, of um, the other moms who were there. I'm gonna jump in real quick. Sure. The powwow is it's a welcome home. It's, yeah. Is it yearly? It it was before the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. So yearly, it's a welcome home for adoptees. Uh, to, who did not grow up in um, in their native communities? So to sort of welcome them back in to into the community, basically. Yeah. And just uh, it, yeah. Yeah, it's held at the Minneapolis American Indian Center. It was started by a woman named Sandy Whitehawk, who is herself an adoptee, and who had kind of taken it upon herself to utilize what is commonly a veterans ceremony, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, that is done for uh, veterans returning home yes. and sort of. Um, yes. Transformed it into um, what I think of as kind of a public ceremony for adoptees returning home. It was pretty emotional. Um, yeah, I, re I remember my mom, um, well, because I think my mom is such, um, she is, she's just lighthearted. There is something about my mom that is, um, she wants to be um, sort of in community with other people. She wants to share her sense of humor. So that, that always helps. So I feel, while it's hard for me, you know, she was there and, and she was talking with these other women. So maybe a sense of pride a little bit, like, yeah. you know, like yeah. um, having come through the, the, the storm of it. So, but I'm wondering for you, is there a sense of, did you connect at all with the welcome home? I had, well, okay, that's, I, I, I had for a long time, um, so my mom came home in 1975. So um, my mom had, had um, 
it's a great story. They, like my dad, hired this private detective. This guy went into records, um, located my uncles um, who lived here in Minneapolis. Um, you know, my mom calls him up and says, hey, I think I'm your sister. They said, hey, we think that too. Yeah. Um, you know, that jibes for us. She met her father. So I had grown up um, a little bit differently than maybe some of the other folks who are in the project in the sense that I had the benefit of, you know, I think I don't remember even when my going to my first powwow. It was, I was, um, you know, at least I'm a little kid and okay. I know that because they have... Um, Pinball Pictures. games at the powwow, oh, and what we wanted was quarters so we could go play video games because there was like a caravan at the powwow where you you know just went and played pinball and, and video games. So I I had all of those experiences. Yeah. So by the time I'm at the Indian Center, I feel pretty much at home at that point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you talked to told me on the phone that um, unearthing a lot of these answers to questions, whether going back to discovering what the Indian Adoption Project was in the first place and the Anderson Papers and all this stuff, that this really helped you find a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you for sharing that voice with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, you thank for you, having thank me. You. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa Olson. And that's our show. Oh, thank you so much for coming. All right. Let me see. I have to get to my thing. All right. I want to thank... Um, uh, obviously, Melissa Olson again, please. And Kat Perkins and Eric Warner. And thank you, our cast, Day Yang, Sylvia Fontaza, Shannon Custer, and Zippy Lasky. This episode was written by all of us. Uh, thank you to our engineer, Catherine Horowitz, and sound assistant, uh, Sam Hudson. Barry Browning, thank you for the lighting. Our volunteers, Suzanne and Carolyn, thank you to the gorgeous staff here at the Women's Club. Thank you very much. And we will be back next month for another live Island of Discovered Women. Thank you very much, everybody. And what do we do now? Ba -ba -da -ba -da -ba 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 -ba